You're listening to a podcast by the Center for Action and Contemplation. To learn more, visit cac.org. Greetings. Uh, I'm Jim Finley. And I'm Kirsten Oates. Welcome to Turning to the Mystics. Welcome, everyone, to Season 5 of Turning to the Mystics. I'm here with Jim, and in today's session, we're going to introduce our Season 5 Mystic. So, Jim, who will we be guided by this season? In this season, you know, in all the previous seasons, we always start out by referring to who the mystic was historically, to understand who the mystic is spiritually. But we can't do this because we don't know who the mystic is, because he's anonymous. And so really his spirit lives in his work, the cloud of unknowing. So his teaching and his presence are embodied there. So the cloud of unknowing then is the title of his book written in um, 14th century England. And the next season after this one will be Julian of Norwich, a contemporary of his, also in Middle English. So that's what we're doing here. We're turning to this book, The Cloud of Unknowing, for the spiritual guidance that it offers us. And Jim, would you say that the author of this cloud and then Julian, who you're planning to do, are two of the main English mystics? There are others. There's some others. But these are the two main ones, I think, that people most know of. I should say this, too, also, is I think most of us today, many of us, uh, are familiar with the teachings in the cloud because of how it's been popularized by Thomas Keating and Basil Pennington and also Father William Manager, three Trappist pre-monks, and also with Cynthia Brigeau and her teachings also, and there are others. So I think what we're really presenting here is centering prayer, the centering prayer as taught directly by the anonymous author of the cloud. Okay. So, Jim, just on that note, this season we'll be learning a way of praying, so similar to last season with Guigo. Exactly. And we'll also be comparing the two, and also comparing it to Teresa and John, which is also a way of praying. We'll see how they're all related, but how they're distinguished from each other, as we kind of see how these mystics are in kind of concert with one another, but each one has his or her own unique voice. Lovely. Just a question about the author. What do we know about him? What, what, what was his vocation? Do we know his vocation? Some people, I've heard writings where he may have been a Carthusian hermit, like Guigo. I've heard also a Dominican people, but we don't know. The one you hear most often is Carthusian. What we do know is he's writing it to a directee, a contemplative spiritual director. And so he's writing it because he discerns this person that he's directing has come to this place in their life, but he's also clearly writing to all of us because he's writing it as general principles. So as we read it, we can discern the degree or what or the way in which it applies to us. And I think anyone who's nurtured by listening to this sequence of sessions, it applies to us by that very fact it nurtures us. So far as this mystical language touches us or accesses us, it bears witness, you know, that this pertains to us and we have helpful things to learn from this teacher, this mystic teacher. Lovely. So we think he was a monk. We're not sure what. We, we don't know. Yeah, we don't know. And then the book is, like a lot of these mystics you're 
helping us understand Jim. They are they're very pastoral. It's it's spiritual direction. It's yes. meeting someone in their own life and in the stage of their journey. But it spreads out to help us all because we go through similar stages. Yeah. So was, I, th- I think what they're doing really because they sat with people so often in contemplative spiritual direction. And because when people come to this mystical phase of their journey, they know how hard it is to find someone with whom you can talk about it. And also how to find trustworthy guidance in it, because it's hard to figure out what's happening to you and how not to get in the way of it, how to understand it. So it has that very personal, pastoral, kind of practical thing to the dress to the heart of the person who's being led along this journey. All their writings have that quality to it. Yeah. Wonderful. Well, I'm really excited, uh, and I know uh, our last season really helped people with their prayer life, so I'm excited to see how this season might continue to help people develop in their prayer life. I can't remember when I first discovered the cloud, whether I was still at the monastery or right after I left, but over the years it's been he's the author of the Klaus Bonner, one of my main teachers. I give a lot of retreats on his teachings, and so it's been a companion for me. It's very readable. It's very inviting that way in the language of it. So it's a really beautiful book. When you found it, Jim, did it impact your prayer life? No, I, don't, I wouldn't say it impacted it. I would, I would say because of the monastery, I was already well into this way. It just that I found the clarity and directness of his voice. I found it very helpful. And I also found it then in giving retreats on the cloud that people find it helpful for that reason. It's so down to earth in a way, like so clear uh, about these subtle things. It helped me in that sense, yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, I know you want to give us a little taste in this first episode. Yes, yes. What I want to do here is, as in previous sessions, talks, what I'm going to do is read a passage in the text and then share with you what I see in the passage, like how it's affected me, how what I see in it, and so on. So as you listen to the text and listen to my what I see in it, as you sit with it or listen to it, it might help you to see what you see in it. So we're kind of passing on the teaching in this way. And I want to begin here with um, chapter 1, and I'm going to read the whole chapter. A lot of these chapters are short. They're just like one page long or two paragraphs long. <clears throat> so this is uh, chapter 1. And what he's doing here uh, is setting us up to, to get the context for what he's about to say, you know, to create a context for it. So this is the context, chapter 1. My dear friend in God... I would like to pass on to you what I've roughly observed about the Christian life. Generally, it seems to progress through four ascending phases of growth, which I call the common, the special, the singular, and the perfect. The first three may indeed be begun and completed in this mortal life, but the fourth, though begun here, shall go on without ending into the joy of eternity." Do you see that I have arranged these stages in a definite sequence? This is because I believe that our Lord in his great mercy is calling you to advance by these steps. I discern his call to you and the desire for him that burns in your heart. 
You know yourself that at one time you were caught up in the common manner of the Christian life, in a day-by-day mundane existence along with your friends. I think the eternal love of God, which had once created you out of nothing and then redeemed you from Adam's curse to the sacrifice of his blood, could not bear to let you go on living so common a life far from him. And so with exquisite kindness, he awakened desire within you and binding it fast with the leash of love's longing, drew you closer to himself into what I have called the more special manner of living. He called you to be his friend, and in the company of his friends, you learned to live the interior life more perfectly than was possible in the common way. Is there more? Yes. For from the beginning, I think God's love for you was so great that his heart could not rest satisfied with this. What did he do? Do you not see how gently and how kindly he has drawn you on to the third way of life, the singular? Yes, you live now at the deep solitary core of your being, learning to direct your loving desire toward the highest and final manner of living, which I have called the perfect. I like to reflect on that. I think what he's doing here, what the author is doing, is he's inviting us to consider our faith and here speaking in the Christian tradition, but I think this would apply any religious seeker in any tradition. He's really inviting us to consider the degree of our intimate personal commitment to our faith life in that tradition. And so in the common life, we might say, are those people who are in the Christian tradition because it provides certain psychological needs, or it provides a sense of community, or provides moral guidance, or a community that offers service to the world in different ways and so on, helps them try to be better people. See? And uh, therefore, we might say it's the holiness of human existence. It's the holiness of the ordinary life, sincerely lived, the common way of life. He says the, the, the special is a point at which God personally becomes real to you in an intimate or tangible way. And we might say it's the life of devotional sincerity, where there's a kind of intimate exchange or intimate sense of communion with God or God's communion with you drawing you to God in devotional sincerity as that spills over into your attitudes, the way you treat other people, the way you live in the world. And he says you seek the company of kindred spirits, of friends, so you, you seek out the company of p- other people who have been so awakened through Bible study or hopefully, say, at liturgy, assuming the, the person leading the liturgy is a person of prayer, that you sense the liturgy is a prayerful time and a community of people to deepen this commitment and so on. And, and this special way of life is efficacious unto holiness, that is, this is how God leads most people in this ordinary life illumined by faith, and so on, to live by love and to, to live as Christ calls and prompts us to live in sincerity, efficacious unto holiness, like this. And he said, then this leads to the singular way of life. And now he's getting closer to what his book's about. And um, to get at the singular way of life, this is uh, the last two paragraphs of the foreword. There are some presently engaged in the act of life who are being prepared by grace to grasp the message of this book. 
I am thinking of those who feel the mysterious action of the Spirit in their inmost being, stirring them to love. I do not say they continually feel this stirring as experienced contemplatives do, but now and again they taste something of contemplative love in the very core of their being. Should such folk read this book, I believe they will be greatly encouraged and reassured. I'd like to reflect on this. See, let's say, now I want to go back here to previous teachings on Thomas Merton and other writings. Let's say you're living this special way of life, devotional sincerity. And here's where, imagine like you draw a circle. And the circle represents the interiority of yourself, or maybe you may say your soul. And what you experience in the special way of life is that God, who is utterly beyond you, accesses the interiority of your soul and awakens it with consolations, with inspirations, with aspirations, with insights, with devotional clarity, and so on. So your very subjectivity becomes kind of translucent to the presence of God guiding you like this. They translate it into daily life. But here he's saying, there's something happens. You're going along this way. And God, here's how I think of it poetically. God, utterly beyond you, accesses you, but passes right through the interiority of your soul, like a shooting star, into the innermost center of you, the imminence of God within you. God's closer to you than you are to yourself, within yourself. So the God who is hidden beyond you is hidden within you innermost, deeper than feeling, deeper than thought, deeper. And God within you, like a shooting star, passes out through you, out to God beyond you. So you're momentarily transfixed in God. See, the ego self is in a state of amazed wonderment or a sense of, of oneness like this. And this taste of contemplative union I say poetically, it's where you and God simultaneously disappear as dualistically other than each other. And sometimes these moments are very intense. They can be very intense moments. They come in all kinds of ways. But very often they're extremely delicate, like they're very subtle, that if you weren't careful, you would have missed it. But there was this unexplainable oneness or a sense of resting in God, resting in you unexplainably in which fear has no foundations, the end of sorrow, like sense of homecoming. And then it passes. And when we go on, what happens, either nothing happens next, or what happens is these flashes, when they come, they render the reflective self more and more translucent to the divine, like it glows with a gentler light because it's illumined by these momentary flashes like this. And we might say, this is fairly common, I think, where people who sincerely live the special way of life. Everyone has tasted these moments in nature, in the arms of the beloved, in the presence of children, in a quiet hour at day's end, alone in the midst of nature, prayer or poet. We all know these little, this, this moments. It's so hard to talk about like this. So he says, what the special way of life is is you realize that for you what's happened is a growing desire to abide in that oneness. 
It's like a longing that you don't understand for a union you don't understand, but you know it's real because you experienced it. And you live there. That is, for you in some way, it's uppermost. And in some way, it has a certain quiet importance to you. And yet it leaves you all the more perplexed. What do I do with this? Like, what do I, like, what's, what's happening to me here? And how do I respond to it? And I think this is the intimacy of the book. All these mystics, really, when you think about it, they're trying to help us listen to ourselves and be very attentive to something that unfolds within us in utterly unique ways in each of us. And then he says something really amazing, which is at the heart of all these teachings. He says these first three, the, the common way, this, the special way, and the singular, they begin and end on this earth. But they lead to the perfect way, which goes on through all eternity. So the perfect way, be ye perfect, even as your heavenly Father is perfect. That when we die and pass through the veil of death, we'll pass beyond these veiled ways of experiencing God through insights, through prayer, through consolations, and so on. And we'll love God with God's own love of God. We'll know God with God's own knowledge of God. We'll be one with God as God is God in our eternal nothingness without God. So it's not that we're God, but our ultimate destiny, that the infinite generosity of God giving God away in this oneness and a life that is at once God's and our own, in, in the fullness of glory. Now what he's saying is this, that with some people what happens is that God decides not to wait until they're dead to begin to grant them a taste of the perfect life. So there's a kind of a boundary crossing. So even though you're still in time and space on this earth, the, the glory of the perfect way, God's own life, crosses over and is accessing you like as a foretaste of paradise like this. And see, that's really, I think that's the subtlety of all of this. But the point is, even though this deathless life of God accesses us unexplainably while we're still in time, he's saying, but we can't find our way into that perfect life until we pass beyond, let go, or die to everything that's less than an infinite union with infinite love is the sole basis of our security and identity. That's the thing. So it's learning to die of love, really, in this kind of subtle unfolding of something we don't understand like this. So he, he's, he's really speaking to this. See, this is who he's really speaking to. So I think for each of us, as we listen to this, we're listening to it in the way of which or the degree to which we've tasted this, or we know of this, or we long for this, because we can tell the author of the cloud is addressing them to that in us, see, that recognizes this or resonates with this. And uh, I'd like to end here then, before he then goes, uh, Chapter 3 is going to say, well, what am I to do with this? He says, here's what you do. Then he tells us what to do, which is the way to pray. By the way, I, I would say this too. Is that for Guigo, Guigo begins at the beginning. Lexio Divina, discursive meditation and prayer. And that corresponds to where the common way of life becomes special. See, it's devotional sincerity of the lexio, the meditation, and the prayer. But it opens and spills out upon the contemplation. See? 
Likewise for Teresa of Avila in the interior castle, the first three mansions are the mansions of psychological spiritual maturity, of prayer, of effort, of work, and see the active life, meaning actively engaged in the commitment to live this way. But with the fourth mansion, or, or your heart's being enlarged to divine proportion, she starts there. And for John of the Cross, he starts also, we have to live by our life by imitating Christ, but we can imitate Christ only by follow Christ. But to follow Christ, we have to study Christ's life. And the author of that cloud says that also later in the book. He said, unless we, 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 we follow Christ and meditate on Christ, we'll go astray here if, if we don't ground ourselves in uh, doing our homework and psychological spiritual maturity. And so now he's, he's starting right in, but instead of starting at the beginning, like we go with Lexio or Teresa, the first mansion, he starts with contemplation. But he's saying, but he's assuming it's only because you've come to this place, see, um, in the midst of things where you're strangely being called to this. So it's a kind of a discernment question like this. So before he tells us how to do this, see, he then helps us to understand better that it's, it's a method, but it's, it's not a method. It's a, it concretizes a desire, a God-given desire. And these are attitudes of the heart. So before we head out on this journey, we prepare for the journey by knowing the attitudes of heart we're going to need to carry us to the journey to resist. And the first is, take courage now, frail mortal though you are. And the courage, I think, is this. Is this possible that this kind of language could actually pertain to me? In the midst of my complexities, in the midst of my uh, all the unresolved things. See, is that possible? See, like what will happen to me if I surrender to these longings? So what will happen to me if I don't? But since I long to surrender to these longings, I don't know how to surrender to them because I don't understand them. So we need courage, he says. And he says, do you think you're someone special or you've deserved the Lord's favor? How can your heart be so laden and spiritless if you do not also see how half-hearted you are in being called to this? It isn't like you're a living saint. You know, you're just trying to get through another day. It just reminds yourself of the ongoing half-heartedness and so on, in which you're being touched in this way and called in this way. So it's, it grounds itself in, in humility. And, and then he says, um, besides, he says, I'll paraphrase, the thing is, you'll be miserable if you don't follow it. That's the thing. You know, it's like the poet, a call to be a poet. It's like Roca, you know, letters to a young poet. In the stillest hour of your darkest night, ask yourself, must I write poetry? If the answer is a clear and simple yes, you must build your whole life on that inner necessity, even at life's unassuming moments. So this is like an inner necessity urging you, realistically speaking, that, that true love never imposes itself. It always invites us. But by a higher order imperative of the awakened heart, there's the inner necessity of following this. Because if I don't follow this, I won't be who in my heart I believe and sense God's calling me to be. That's the integrity of it, I think. And he says then, pursue your course relentlessly. Be relentless because you need to be very patient here with this. 
You need to be quietly persistent and keep leaning into it and learn to let God lead you in this mysterious inner journey. And so that's the introduction. See, that's he, that's kind of where he's at. It's a great, you can, you, know, you can feel him drawing us in and how real this is to him and how he knows that somehow the very fact that we resonate with it, it's real to us, but, but it's vague. So how do we stabilize and get more and more clear in it and more confident in it? And he says, you know, that's why I believe those who read this book will be greatly encouraged and reassured. Why? Because the whole book is about how to ground yourself. That's why you're going to be, you walk around with it, keep it under your pillow. It's kind of like, it's like your faithful guide to fulfillment. So anyway, that's the introductory. Yeah, your faithful guide to for what you long for so deeply. Exactly. Turning to the mystics will continue in a moment. Did you plan, Jim, the sequence Guigo and then Cloud of Unknowing? They seem to just flow beautifully together to start, like you said, Guigo starts at the beginning. I did in a way. I, I, how I started for me personally, because I'm trying to be true to myself personally and passing on what was passed on to me. So I started with Merton because I started with Merton. But I also thought pastorally, he's a good place to start because he's contemporary. And then I did John of the Cross next because that was the mystic that most touched me in the monastery deeply. So because that was next for me with Merton, which is so I did John of the Cross. But also because he takes us directly into the mystical through the dark night. And then Teresa as a companion is the Spanish mystical tradition, contemporary, as a mystic starting. But she's, again, unlike John of the Cross, she gives careful attention to these beginning stages in the mystical. And then Guigo, I thought, was a natural place to do next because he's so practical. You know, he so puts words to the interiority. Even the first step on the ladder is filled with God. You know, this Lexio consciousness and the holiness of that. And so it just seemed like a natural way to to take it beyond theory into the concreteness of concretizing a desire. And so then the cloud seems to follow next because the cloud's so practical. But he's so practical, and we goes forth the rung of the ladder of contemplation. He assumes the others, then he says, now let's, where do we go from here? So in, in that sense, yes, I suppose. And then Juliana, Norwich is next. She's uh, she's really something else. It's just really, uh, you know what I mean? I'm very, anyway, we'll look at her next. Yes, yeah. yeah. Anyway. Well, I'm excited because, um, like you said, Guigo starts at the beginning. And I, what I liked about Guigo was the practical nature of what he shared. And so to have that, the contemplatio piece now a whole book on it, a whole teaching on it, a whole kind of understanding we can move into. Here's something else I think is important. See, for a person who is being gently drawn to this, for such a person, this is practical. See, this is practical with respect to what in your heart you know matters most. It's extremely practical. But it's highly impractical to the one who's not yet been awakened to it. Like, what are you, what are you talking about? <laughs> and even, even though you're called to it, there's a part of you that doesn't get it yet either. 
but some, to the inner quickening of this awakening is supremely practical. It's like love's necessity, like that, yeah. Yes. Yeah, I, I, what you're saying is so subtle, and I've been trying to grasp it in our dialogues, but because it's, it's at one level it's a kind of a method, but it's, it's really just giving, giving a path to a desire that has its own compass and orientation, and it's just kind of trying to get us pointed in the right direction, really. Exactly. That's why in previous sessions, too, we said just like, see, it's like people in a deeply committed, loving relationship can't make their moments of oceanic oneness happen. But they've learned together the interior stance that offers the least resistance to being overtaken by what they make. The poet can't make the poem appear. But the poet has learned the ascesis of poetry, the discipline of the inner stance that sets it free to flow. The one committed to healing can't make the healing happen. So there are methods, as in the sense, strategies, like provisional strategies, to heighten the vulnerability to be overtaken. It attains us in our inability to attain it deeply accepted. But it isn't big, it's a strategy, it's concrete. Like, here's here's how you assume this posture. See? And with practice, you'll get more and more confident. Otherwise, if it wasn't for practice, it's just beautiful thoughts. Really. And and it, it even what your appetite, it doesn't, it's like a tease. See? So unless there's like, like a concreteness in which it's intimately realized, see, it's grounded that way. And all the traditions do this all they offer it they concretely do yeah yes i think that's just going to be so helpful to everyone listening for this season i liked the way too jim in um when you talked about guigo's ladder that although it has a sense of ascent that god is perfectly present in every rung of the ladder so it's the way we show up to our practice that is with our whole heart and our whole selves is the way God always shows up to us at every level of yeah. practice. Yeah, I want to share something. Remember we said uh, we were doing Guigo, and we said that what happens, he says you, you, you're in this ecstatic state of contemplation. He said then it, it, God withdraws it. And the image I have is like falling backwards in slow motion. And what do you land in? The first rung of the ladder. The scriptures open on your lap, your fingers on the text, the... But now it's different because, see, now you know that at any moment all that can blossom like this, see. And uh, it's like people first falling in love with each other, the first time they touch each other. Once they're quickened in the realization, now they know what a touch makes possible. And so in this way, notice something. Notice he's not speaking way up here somewhere to this person or to us. Notice how he so naturally speaks in such a direct, like he's talking to us. He's talking, he's right on, he's right on the level. It's not a one up, one down. It's like incarnate infinity that meets us in the sincerity of our desires. That's the holiness of circling back around to meet us where we are. And I think the whole spiritual life is like that. It's Christ consciousness, I guess. It's just such a grace to, uh, learn from these mystics who you can tell just their experience of this was so real and so true. So even if I haven't had that direct experience that I know they've had, I, I can 
I really have a trust and a faith and a sense of wonder and aspiration that comes with listening to them. That's true. And, but I also think this is true also. It's true that when we listen to people like this, they're habitually established in what they're saying. You know, they're kind of sharing what's happened to them because of the clarity of their voice. Doing this is not, it's like that. And it's also true that you're not saying that's true of you. In the fullness of which is so true of them. But it's also true you're no stranger to it because something in your heart recognizes it. And therefore, we're listening, like the still quiet voice. See, there's something I don't know it yet in its fullness, but but it's it's already giving itself to me, and has quickened me, in a way that allows me to know that the mystic is talking about what I've tasted. See, and therefore we're 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 together in this one, and then we just keep leaning into it, and you know, see what God has in mind. You know what I mean? Yeah. Beautiful, Jim. When we were preparing for this session, we were talking about how God language has, we've lost kind of the the central nature of God language and how these mystics really speak the true God language. And and for those of us who have that language as our, our central way of accessing our spirituality, our spiritual selves, um, these mystics help us with that as well. Yes. You know, this is a fundamental sense I have. I listen a lot to Krista Tippett, you know, on Being, the website, all these great dialogues, and also Super Soul Sunday, Oprah's thing, and also to other podcasts and books. It's so interesting that people on a spiritual path, the themes they discuss are the themes of the saints and mystics down through the ages, back into Christ, the gospel, which makes sense in a way. And a lot of it is how can we on a spiritual path share this awakening to help and be there for and with others? See, how can we uh, let the quickening inspire us to move and help and be sensitive to a lot of it? So really, a lot of it has to do with how the spirit moves in us and stirs in us. But uh, Carl Rahner, the Catholic theologian, says we could remove, Richard Rohr says this too in his book on the Trinity, we could completely take the Trinity out of the, all of it, and no one would even know it was missing. But I would suggest you could take God out of it, no one would even know it was missing. They rarely even at, talk about God. Really. I, I don't understand. And I, I think I know why, in a way. It's because of the ideology of God. You know, some superstructure, some power, some kind of... And we kind of sense the natural aversion to that. And so we seek it. But the, I think what the mystics are saying, really, is that it's, it's really God is a bottomless abyss of eternal love. That is reality itself. It's the infinite presence of God infinitely giving itself away and presencing itself in and as the gift and the miracle of the immediacy of our very presence in our nothingness without God. And we're touched by that, see, incarnate in faith. So if we look at Jesus, Jesus, whatever else about Jesus, Jesus was a very God-conscious person. He spent whole nights alone in prayer. He who sees me sees the Father. Like the, and we return to the Father. The whole mystery of the whole cross is returning to God. Into your hands I commend my spirit. So I think in a way these mystics help us get a sense of God in a way that delivers us from ideologies of God. 
this all, so all these mystics are about really how do we pass beyond these ideologies of God to be this sense of being divinized by God unexplainably in this abyss of love as a sense of communion. And I think that's very helpful in all these mystics that they help us do that. Me too. And Jim, you talk about like it's the universal truths that the mystics are bringing forth. It's the truths that have always been true about humans and God. And Exactly. So let's say our God-given capacity to realize this union is universal because it's the dowry of our being, being created by God as persons in the image and likeness of God. It's universal. But when a person is awakened to this, the language they use, they draw from the culture in which they were awakened. So in Judaism, you have Kabbalah, see, the Ein Sof, the Jewish mystic, the great mystics. And for the Christian tradition, you have these mystics. See? And in Islam, you have the Sufis, the Sufi way, see, this, this love, this love. And in yoga, the Patanjali, the Yoga Sutra, Namaste, see, the yogi, to be yoked to God, this, uh, like this. And in Buddhism, the Dharma, see, the, the infinite, what is it to see reality free of delusion, free of craving? Is to see as infinite and boundaryless in all directions, the divinity of the immediacy of it. So these are languages, like cultural specific languages. And this is why when contemplative people meet each other, they recognize each other. See? And uh, it's the underlying unity of all world religions in these traditions, which is really a source of the underlying unity of the world. How do we bring that unity you know, into the social order and into, which is the essence of social justice, the essence of service? What would it mean to be a contemplative politician? See, see what would it mean to be a contemplative, what is it to be a contemplative scientist? What is it to be a contemplative author? So we're, we're always grounding it in the day by day and carrying it forward to help others. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think that's a beautiful reminder and uh, sounds like someone was trying to call you. Yeah, in the background, I, I had to recharge my phone uh, <laughs> and, and I didn't turn this out in the living room. And, okay. I, and I didn't think, I forgot, anyway. I was a, and, anyway, yes. It's, no problem, no problem. <laughs> it's their problem. Sorry. Yeah. Um, well, that was that's a beautiful reminder of the deepness of what the mystics are teaching and the the way it's so relevant to every aspect of life and the way we treat ourselves and each other. Uh, I know for me, it's helpful because of some of the ways Christianity has been taught and been brought into our culture to start each mystic with a beginner's mind. You know, to to try and be letting go of any assumptions about God I might have. Exactly. And that's why I think I always try to speak this way because it's the way they speak because it cuts through assumptions. I mean, there's something disarming about its directness in a way. And by the way, I know we said this before with the leaf blowers, you know, the phone that rang. Uh, see, it isn't, how do we understand that? See, one, it could be like an unfortunate interruption into the depth of our talk. See? And in a way it is. But we could also see that it's the unfolding of God's presence in the immediacy of things happening. I think that's what Jesus meant by doing the will of God, that the will of God is the immediacy of what's happening, is trustworthy, even if you're hanging on a cross. 
And so we're being sensitized to the immediacy of things. So we're not closing ourselves off to some separate, the Buddhists say, don't grow a separate head. Here, we're, we're trying to ground ourselves in the divinity of the immediacy of the details of the day in a grounded way. So, yeah. Well, it was a pretty ring, and, and I was thinking too <laughs> that we were supposed to start much earlier, so maybe you were missing your midday appointment with God today. God was calling. Maybe that was God calling. Actually, what I think was, I think it was one of my daughters touching base with me, saying I'm okay. Yeah. I think that's probably who it is. But, uh, but it, yeah, or God calling, same thing. <laughs> well, I'll just share too. Um, we talked to him about how God language, um, I, I had a, an experience recently because I recently lost my big dog, Winston, who has been very loyally by my side at every podcast recording we've done. So um, it was very sad to say goodbye to him. But when my little nieces and nephews were asking me where Winston had gone, although my, my sister's not bringing them up in, in Christianity, I just had to say he's in heaven because I, I want to communicate that he's in a safe, beautiful, you know, he's still He's still with us in this safe, beautiful, yeah, special way. Exactly. Here's another way of putting that to me, in a way. I, I showed this once when I was studying medieval philosophy at, at the monastery and uh, Thomas Aquinas and so on. I asked Dan Walsh, who was teaching the class, I said, you know, could we say that after the geographical Tokyo no longer exists, they'll still be Tokyo? He said, Absolutely. Because Tokyo is eternally in God's mind. So everything is eternally real. This conversation we're having, um, uh, God never forgets. So, oh, so the eternality of, the, of a leaf or a tree or a dog or a bird, that everything, ha everything is worth all that God is worth and it's nothingness without God. And that this eternality, the fleetingness of everything, and so really the celestial state is realizing that in glory. But now we can realize it obscurely because our heart knows that language like this is true. That when we die, we're not annihilated, but consummated. And uh, it's the foreverness of everything, you know. Wonderful. Well, this has been a great introduction. But before we finish, Jim, which book will you be using I this, this is coming to me right now. I don't know why. We can cut this out if we need to. I don't know. In the New Yorker, they had a cartoon, and it shows a dog and a cat sitting together. They have their back to you, and they're looking into a corner. And it's an empty corner. There's nothing in it. And the next picture, they're still looking. The next picture, they're still looking. And the next picture, the dog turns to the cat and says, what in the hell are we looking at? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good insight into emptiness. Anyway. <laughs> uh, yes, so the translation that I'm using, is that right? So what I'm using is, uh, and I think this can be posted, I think Corey can, uh, yeah, so they'll have these, so those forward and forward. So this is William Johnson's translation of The Cloud of Anointing. It's the one I've always stayed with and used, Image Double Day. And by the way, William Johnston was also a Zen sensei at Sophia University in Japan. And he wrote his doctoral dissertation on the cloud of unknowing, the theology of the cloud of unknowing. And Thomas Merton wrote the foreword to it. And Johnson came to visit me 
and uh, we talked about things like this and so on. So I, I it, it's always been, but I also know that uh, excellent too is Ira Progoff, the intense journaling person, the translation, and then also but what's her name, Butcher. Uh, uh, ca- common yeah, great, beautiful. Yes, I, I, it's the most recent yes. translation. And I watched a video of her, very fine, very, very good. And I know Cynthia Bourgeau thinks very highly also of her work, but I'm sticking just because it's the one I know, you know, it's the one I've walked with, and so I'm using that. You know. Lovely. Well, season five, can you believe it? <laughs> I know, all this in heaven, too. Jeez. <laughs> Well, thank you for a great introduction session and I'll look forward to a dialogue after your, your first kind of Lexio session. Yes, exactly. Thank you for listening to this episode of Turning to the Mystics, a podcast created by the Centre for Action and Contemplation. We're planning to do episodes that answer your questions. So if you have a question, please email us at podcasts at cac.org or send us a voicemail at cac.org forward slash voicemails. All of this information can be found in the show notes. We'll see you again soon. Do you feel called to walk a more contemplative path? The Center for Action and Contemplation is an educational nonprofit supporting the journey of inner transformation. Our programs and resources will help grow your consciousness, deepen your prayer practice, and strengthen your compassionate engagement with the world. Learn more about our resources, such as publications, podcasts, email series, and events at www.cac.org.